And welcome back to Deep Talks Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. It's so good to have another episode here today. You know, we've taken some time off. There's been a pretty significant gap between uh, what essentially ended up being the end of our series on theology and science and what we're going to discuss today. And, and the primary reason is I, I started in between that time, started a, a new pastoral role at a church here in, in Minneapolis, and the kids have gone back to school and jumped into school activities and sports and ballet. And this for me, this podcast is just a, a labor of love because I, I enjoy doing this. I, I, I find it to be beneficial for me, but I've also heard so much encouraging feedback from, from other people that have found the, the sorts of conversations that we're having in this podcast about uh, about faith and theology and, and the big questions of life that we wrestle with to uh, they found this to be a helpful a helpful resource for them so I want to keep doing it as much as I can admittedly here probably during the school year months because I am a dad of three kids that uh, it might be hit or miss but uh, I still want we're gonna keep going and keep trucking with, with the podcast as much as I have the grace to, to be able to do. So uh, I'm thankful that you're back listening. Today's topic, uh, we're, I'm moving away from the theology and science realm, though that will be an area that I know we're going to come back to at some point. Uh, I wanted to take some time today with election season upon us to discuss something that does have a, a, a political connection. And uh, I was thinking about this subject as I was going through and my wife and I, we figured, boy, it's uh, we, we really not quite, we haven't had the time, we haven't sunk and invested the time into looking into our local candidates. And we're, you know, we're a few weeks away. So we want to do some studying up so that we could be educated voters. And one of the best resources I found to just kind of help me sort through where people are at in more nuanced ways than just picking team a and team b is there's a great website out there called i side with i believe it's isidewith.org and you take essentially a political quiz and uh, you you know answer based on your perspective and then you get um, feedback results as to which candidates which parties you're in most alignment with and they break it down by topic and particular area of political uh, in the in the political world and it's really helpful. But many of the questions uh, uh, about national security uh, got me thinking about a subject area that I've become quite passionate about over the years. And it's about Christian attitudes towards war. Um, what is, what should our attitudes be about war and violence as followers of Jesus? And in today's podcast, uh, we're going to explore three positions that uh, Christians have had in regards to war. To talk about this topic because I actually don't think it's uh, an, an area just for evangelicals to reflect on. I actually think there's room for reflection and reevaluation if you've grown up in a Roman Catholic background, in maybe another a more quote-unquote high church Protestant background. I think this is more of an issue for Americans because war is such a central part of our 
of our national narrative of our of our um, uh, the mythos of uh, of our nation. Um, so this is really, really an important subject. Let's jump into it right now. In my generation, in particular sociocultural context, there's a, a significant resurgence of theological debate that's been happening among evangelicals, American evangelicals, and even those who now might consider themselves post-evangelicals that, that were raised uh, as I was, and I think as many Americans are who identify as Christians in uh, that have been raised in a holy war theological narrative. And that's one of the three positions we're going to talk about today. And I'll, 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 I'll take some more time to define holy war in a moment. But for so many of us who inherited a sort of neoconservative civic religion, many of us have found ourselves um, doing some deconstruction. And deconstruction is a necessary part of any journey of faith. And uh, what's important, though, is in our deconstruction that we actually find a positive place for reconstruction. That's, I think, what I've hoped this podcast is all about, is not um, just mindless deconstruction, but to deconstruct what's wrong and reconstruct around the truth and explore perhaps reasons why um, or expose us even just to different possibilities for how we can understand theology and faith and the Bible. So anyways, those of us that maybe have grown up with a neoconservative civic religion, that is, you've come from a more modern conservative, we're talking, is in my case, I'm an 80s, a child of the 80s, born in 83, and you've grown up in the neoconservative, you know, post-Cold War, uh, late Cold War to post-Cold War conservatism. We're in that post uh, Cold War America became more and more of a, a policeman of the world uh, in this vacuum of power after the fall of the Soviet Union. Many of us uh, just grew up with the ass- assumed narrative that it is America's responsibility to be the force of good in the world, and therefore... Uh, any war that America engages in is holy war. So some people over the last couple of decades have uh, that have grown up in that narrative have found themselves, there's been situations or uh, not just political situations, but perhaps they've come face to face in the scriptures with um, biblical commands about how we are to treat our enemies and they have studied church history and have found that perhaps especially early on in the church, and we're talking about in the early patristic era, the the first few centuries, that Christians seem to have very different attitudes towards violence and war than what they became accustomed to or what they were accustomed to. They found themselves in this process of questioning and deconstructing. And so in that process, many in my generation have become more aware of the other historic Christian options of pacifism and just war. So let's talk a little bit about this position that we can call holy war. It's a the position that I think I grew up with. I think probably, and this even goes, we could say is, it doesn't just uh, 
limit itself to those of us who have grown up in kind of the post-Reagan era. The Holy War position probably became, in many ways, the the common position of American Christians post-World War II. Um, and probably one of the big reasons for that is the obvious role of America as we became more and more aware of the horrors of the Holocaust, and we saw ourselves as the holy liberators of the world from tyranny, oppression, injustice, that this position became um, very, very popular among Christians. So the the Holy War position, uh, at least the one that I have experienced in my lifetime, often employs a, a dualistic mentality of clear good versus clear evil, clear right versus clear wrong, and and then thus believes God will take whatever recourse necessary, including even preemptive war, offensive violence, and and even possibly genocide to defeat and defend the good. In this view, God may and often does use violent means to accomplish his just end. And because he does so, Christians are then also called to participate in God's triumph over evil. Um, Practical participation in God's triumph over evil can most often be manifested in this modern era through the claims of nation-states like the United States to act as moral agents in world affairs. And when they do this, they most frequently, modern nation-states, will solicit or even compel military participation from Christian citizens. Christian citizens. So uh, that's the holy war position in a nutshell. The other two positions that I've made mention of um, are, uh, historically, the church has had um, strong discussion, debate, compelling reasons for, there has been, obviously, the case uh, for holy war throughout the church's history, but there's also been two other options, passivism and just war. Passivism, in the Christian sense, represents a range of nonviolent responses that may either be informed by a, and this is a a phrase used in Christian ethics or just in ethics in general, informed by a deontological commitment. That is to say, a, a principled commitment to what one considers to be the explicit teaching of Christ and is also informed by uh, the trust in God's righteous end resolution, or we could say the righteous eschatological resolution. So when God finishes and completes his redemptive plan for history, Christian pacifists have trusted that, not that evil can do whatever it wants, but that our response to evil in using nonviolent responses is a symbol of trust in God's righteous judgment in the end, regardless of the immediate outcomes. There's also been Christian pacifists that have uh, chosen this pathway for other reasons, what we what we might call more teleological commitments, meaning that they feel that the pacifist pathway creates the best end result, or the best outcome immediately even. 
and they might be uh, committed to this outcome or committed to this pathway, this this pacifist way, because of their belief in the the spiritual potency of nonviolent peacemaking. Uh, because they see in nonviolence an ability to transform the world in ways that are far superior to trying to transform the world through violence. Now, somewhere between these two ends of the spectrum is just war theory, which has historically assumed that God's preferred method of de-escalating conflict is through peaceful, nonviolent measures first, but considers also that there, there might be possible scenarios where the use of violent force may be justifiable. Now, the criteria of what constitutes a just war has experienced many variations from its 4th century origination in the work of Augustine and Ambrose. Uh, proponents of this position still defend some set of what they perceive to be uh, as prescribed biblical principles that would prohibit their participation and support of certain war scenarios, while simultaneously attempting to define limited occurrences where war may be the only just option available. So, today's podcast, I I don't necessarily want to settle the debate in theological circles, especially in academia that's happening today, theological academia among just war proponents or defenders of pacifism. What I would prefer to present to you today who are listening I would prefer to make a case that, in my experience as a white person living in Midwestern evangelical contexts um, that have been predominantly politically and theologically conservative, that um, my goal would be to, to speak to those of you who share that similar background and to try to convince you to make a case to you that the holy war tradition is not the biblical biblically faithful position and to get you into the dialogue between pacifist and just war um, supporters i think for me if that could happen, or at least to get people who have spent time most of their life assuming this holy war narrative to be the only way to get you even into the discussion between the rich debate between just war defenders and pacifists, that, that to me that would be a success. To even just have a moment where we are questioning and reassessing the national narratives, these national myths that we have maybe even assigned almost a sense of religious value to about the unquestioning role of violence and the violence of our own nation state in the world in acting in war, to have a a moment of pause and to consider whether or not that is the most faithful way of following Jesus. If that happens in this podcast to me, it would be a tremendous success. Yeah, my goal is to encourage those of you that 
currently find yourself in the holy war tradition, or, or maybe you didn't even know that that's what you believe, to consider pacifism or nonviolent resistance as the normative position established by Jesus, but also in light of this normative stance, to acknowledge, along with many just war theorists, that in rare circumstances, the, the complexities of our sinful age may require armed defense as part of a, a, a sort of another term in ethics, a conflicting absolutism, which simply means that we have this normative principled position, but then we also recognize that in rare circumstances that there's conflicts to our, to our absolutism, our conflicts to our, our principled position, which it, it seems like perhaps the only thing that we can do in seeking the righteous preservation of peace is to potentially have some limited uh, situations where we go, boy, though this is against what we believe the principled way of Jesus is, it seems like these are the only scenarios where we will uh, make a well-intended deviation from this in order to preserve peace the best we can. I think debunking holy war for those that are in this have maybe moved out of the holy war or maybe they never held to the holy war position and they're in firmly entrenched in either the the just war camp or the pacifist camp. I, I think for those of you, it's in the common interest uh, of of followers of Jesus in, in, in sort of both camps to uh, come together and say, hey, we want to invite you into this dialogue, those who have had this holy war position, and to um, consider these possibilities, especially because this is, in, in our republic, in our democratic republic, our beliefs about this as a, as a nation that, again, at least claims nominally to have the vast majority of its citizens be quote-unquote Christians, that what we believe on this issue has huge importance as to what happens in the world, as to who we elect to represent us in the world. And in some way, who we elect to represent us on these issues, I, I do wonder whether or not it makes us culpable for things that happen in the world, whether they are the innocent, um, the, the loss of innocent life, lives in a, in a drone strike, or, 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 or whether it's perhaps the, the effects of what happens in a, an offensive military strike uh, somewhere in the Middle East, that when these things happen, they happen as a result of the people that we have placed in those positions of power. And so for me, this has become such a an area of passion, because perhaps unlike even when we were talking about theology and science, you know, what you might believe on that issue might not have massive global ramifications, right? You as an individual might not have a significant impact in the areas of science, unless for 
some reason you are a scientist, you're a professor. And if that was the case, you know, um, my podcast is probably beneath you. But, uh, you know, for pastors and other people, but, you know, if you just, you have a, a regular office nine to five, you know, it's going to be helpful for you to make sense of the world, but it probably doesn't have a massive impact on what happens in the rest of the world. Whereas this issue does, as Christians vote in alignment with their conscience and their beliefs, um, this carries massive impl- impl- um massive implications on what happens in the rest of the world. So for those of you that are like, boy, I'm firmly uh, entrenched in the pacifist tribe, or those of you that are, I am, I am team just war theory, and it would behoove both of you to go, let's, let's find some common ground here together, and, and to not be so polemic in our arguments that we... Um, and I found this more and more with those who have been in my generation who have maybe moved in this Anabaptist direction because they're so disgusted with the the default Christian attitude towards war, which is, again, I think really in my, my, my very firm uh, opinion here has been this holy war tradition. They've gone into this Anabaptist direction, and there there is a lot of, um, I have Anabaptist friends, and I love you guys, but for so many of you um, out there, there has been this fierce polemic against anybody that now disagrees with you that, that, that sees, you know, anything other than pacifism as a just or as a justifiable biblical option. And when that happens, like, we can't even have dialogue together. And uh, so I want to encourage, you know, my pacifist friends out there to not be so dismissive of people that were in the same position you were just a few years ago, to not be so dismissive of those that have reassessed the holy war tradition and landed in a just war place. And for you to go, you know, I've seen, and this has happened among, you know, kind of popular mouthpieces of pacifism over these last 10 years, and they've demonized those who have gone, boy, I I think I'd land in the just war camp, or they still are in the holy war tradition, and they they look at those people, and they they demonize them, and they, 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 you know, essentially say, well, you're not following Jesus as well as I am, and that sort of stuff doesn't lead to, uh, to growth. It doesn't actually lead towards dialogue that would help somebody see your position as viable. So let's let's have some shared commonality here together as we go through this, go through this process so that we can uh, actually get to a point where there's the possibility of people potentially even seeing something that they've missed before. And that doesn't happen when they get defensive. So first of all, let's let's start by even acknowledging the presence of holy war in the Old Testament and why people are not insane as Christians to land in this position uh, as they try to faithfully live out uh, uh, their faith as it's informed by Scripture. So the first incident of biblical war happens in Genesis 14. And it involves Abraham and his 318 warriors who who fight to recover Lot. 
and, and then are actually blessed by this mysterious king of peace, Melchizedek, who, who says that God, quote, delivered enemies, uh, delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands. It sets this precedent, this this precedent from Genesis 14 onward of continued support in the Pentateuch and much of the Old Testament for, for notions of holy war. So uh, again, you find that in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. Central to the Hebrew narrative is Passover. And, and those of us that have maybe reassessed the holy war narrative and have jumped into just war and uh, pacifist um, positions, we should acknowledge that central to this Hebrew narrative is Passover, which is the, the most sacred Jewish holiday where what happened on this, on Passover, you know, the angel of the Lord slaughtered the firstborn Egyptian sons as the final in a series of violent acts towards the Egyptians in order to deliver the Hebrews from slavery. And that's found in Exodus 12. While this narrative does not constitute a specific incidence of human war, it shapes a theological imagination for the ancient Hebrews that's deeply attached to their notions of war. For example, Exodus 20 verse 1, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. So these very earliest revelations of God to Israel back in the Pentateuch, if we're honest, they they seem to overwhelmingly support the notion of holy war. At times, God promises his wrath will be incurred even upon Israel if they do not, quote, utterly destroy, end quote, all living enemy inhabitants and their property. Deuteronomy 29, verse 16 through 18. The seemingly merciless call for harem, meaning to set apart a people for destruction, is reiterated or or carried out no less than 37 times in the Old Testament. And and notoriously, King Saul's disobedience to this command costs him the crown for Samuel 15. These pictures of a God who, who, quote, makes his arrows drunk with blood, Deuteronomy 32, verse 42, are not to be too easily dismissed, as in the case of Many of us, many people who have, again, moved away from the Holy War position. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, a great book on Christian ethics, Kingdom Ethics by David Gushy and Glenn Stassen, uh, claim the Holy War position has been discredited. I think this represents, again, another example of where theological academia is really far removed from where Main Street everyday Christians are at. I think people who are reading their Bible and going cover to cover, maybe doing their Bible in a year readings, reading through the Old Testament go, yeah, see, there are plenty of opportunities where God has used war and uses war 
as a way of establishing justice in the world, and he uses his people to accomplish his ends, and he's with them, and it's a sign that God is on your side. If you're victorious in battle, I I don't think it's absurd for people to land. There are people who are earnestly attempting to do Christian ethics from above. That is to mean that they are sourcing their ideas on what's right and wrong from God, using the scriptures as their normative source, and they end up concluding in favor of holy war. I think dismissing those people, again, doesn't help the dialogue, and nor, again, does it seriously take the impacts of everyday evangelicals on the military and foreign policy. Not only do these notions of God-sponsored holy war inform Christians in the distant past to engage in the Crusades or in manifest destiny, but the very notion of God being on the side of what's right and empowering those who fight with him against evil is the very same narrative that I was raised in. And when I say that, even, you know, my mom and dad listen to the podcast, I'm not saying my parents were, when I say I was raised in that, I mean exclusively my parents, this is what they did and they taught me this, but I'm saying the larger social cultural context that I was raised in. It's the very same narrative that leads many American evangelical churches to celebrate Memorial Day during a Sunday morning service or to have American flags on their platform or on their stage during worship. It, It also informs Christian school teachers and church youth pastors to encourage many of their young men and women to consider military enlistment as somehow like fulfilling a Christian calling. When an estimated two-thirds of the people killed in Europe over the last 500 years were killed by Christians, (laughs) it's clear that the holy war position deserves serious attention and in many ways, and in my opinion, is a serious challenge to peace. So, as we've seen here, there there is evidence in the Old Testament that would seem to support this holy war position. And if you stopped right there in the Pentateuch in particular, you might go, well, that's an open and shut case. But if you keep reading throughout the Old Testament, you see evidence of tension in the Old Testament. Evidence where perhaps this is actually not God's ideal. While the prophet Joel provides a prophetic picture of a future day of the Lord where plowshares are beaten into swords in order that God's violent retribution will be poured out on the wicked, Isaiah presents a vision of a future day of the Lord where swords are beaten into plowshares. I mean, seriously, like compare Joel 3.10 and Isaiah 2 Verse 1 through 4, both of them are talking about a future day of the Lord, and certainly it's up for debate whether that is in regards to the final day of the Lord or just simply a day of God's reckoning within their own era. But Joel says, yep, the day of the Lord, plowshares are going to get turned into swords so that God can pour out his judgment on the wicked. And then Isaiah is like, oh, there's a day of the Lord where 
swords are beaten and turned into plowshares. This is just one example of the biblical tension that grows throughout God's progressive revelation between the the blessing of holy war for Israel found in the Pentateuch and the the growing yearning that we could say the eschatological yearning for peace that we find in the prophets. One of the best examples of this Old Testament tension can be found in the life of King David who had a career as a holy warrior and whose career as a holy warrior somehow served as evidence of God's anointing and God's God's calling on him to the crown. And yet simultaneously, here's where this tension emerges. God forbids David from building the temple because, quote, He shed much blood on the earth in God's sight. 1 Chronicles 22.8. What do we do with that tension? (laughs) This biblical tension, it's like there's evidence of God's anointing on David because he does things like killed Goliath and Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. And yet, and yet there's this tension here where God goes, nope, you can't build my temple because You've killed too many people. You've been a warrior. Perhaps just as Moses' tabernacle with its violent sacrificial system gave way to David's tabernacle of peaceful poetry and song, maybe a temporary sanctioning of holy war was never intended to be permanent, but was always intended to give way to a better vision. The prophets give witness to this better vision. The book of Isaiah provides some of the most hopeful promises for a final ending of violence. This vision of peace is not restricted only to the people of Israel, but it's promised to extend to, quote, the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, verse 6. How will this peace be brought about? Oh, Isaiah prophesies that this peace is brought about through a suffering servant who is, quote, like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7b. So where is this tension, this this evidence of a, a better picture? Where does it all point to? Where is this progressive revelation leading to? Well, the prophet Jeremiah promised a future day where God was going to act in a new way. It will not be, quote, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, Jeremiah 33, verse 32a. This is not to say that the previous covenant was wrong at that time, but it's simply to say that that God was going to do something new that would be a progressive improvement upon the past. This is just one example of the biblical precedent for the doctrine of progressive revelation that affirms that the journey through time in Scripture leads humanity progressively towards God's ideal. This progressive revelation is a hermeneutic key to understand the Bible, and it's central to our task of understanding God's will towards war and peace. 
as the theologian Millard Erickson suggests, good readers of the Bible should, quote, weigh later developments in the biblical narrative more heavier than earlier ones. As we read in later developments, holy war is abandoned for God's better vision of peacemaking. While Israel's Old Testament leaders like Joshua understood holy war as part of a covenantal prescriptive command for the people of God at that time, it's just as clear in the culmination of God's revelation in a new Joshua, who again, Jesus' Aramaic name, Yeshua, is a direct translation of, that there is a new covenantal prescription, a new prescription for the people of the new covenant, for the people of God. And this new covenantal prescription sounds like this. Blessed are the peacemakers. Love your enemies. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. These sayings are the nonviolent manifesto of Jesus easily recognizable by Christians and non-Christians alike as part of the core teaching of Jesus. And not only was nonviolent pacifism the teaching of Jesus, it was embodied in the life of Jesus, who died as Isaiah's prophesied suffering servant, who cried out in one of his final moments on the cross, Father, forgive them, towards the very people killing him. That's just, I mean, that's insane. That's one of the most insane pictures and in all the things that happen on Passion, in Passion Week and on Good Friday was is the notion of Jesus crying, Father, forgive them towards the people killing him. And we see that in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 34. Now, certainly, the New Testament authors and earliest followers of Christ understood Jesus' teaching and embodied practice to completely eliminate the possibility of holy war, and to make pacifism the normative ethical standard. In fact, uh, Gushy and, and Stassen, who I again mentioned in their, their ethics book, uh, Kingdom Ethics, argue that Jesus' prophetic warning in Mark 13 about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which came as a direct result of Jewish armed rebellion against the Romans, included an explicit command to not participate but to flee to the mountains. Now, while Jesus makes no explicit commands directly about holy war, or directly about war at all, early church fathers, such as Tertullian, understood Jesus' pacifism to be the hermeneutic key for determining God's ideal vision in the Old Testament. In Jesus, God's ideal kingdom had already come. And in his new covenant, there's no room for violence. Historians are virtually unanimous in their agreement that the first three centuries of church history were marked by a rejection of holy war, as, as Christianity was a pacifist movement. A uh, great resource to check out on that is Justo Gonzalez's, um, is a great uh, church historian. Uh, pick up anything by Justo Gonzalez. Side note there. <laughs> While ancient Judaism was a religion that supported holy war, as evidenced by things like the Maccabean Revolt or the Jewish Roman Wars that happened 
both in uh, AD 70, you know, generation after Jesus, and again, actually in the second century too. While ancient Judaism, again, was a religion that supported holy war, but whose efforts to engage in conflict against their stronger captors seemed to only be tempered by pragmatic concerns about their success, ancient Christianity in those first three centuries seems to have been guided by a deontological, again, that means a a fundamentally principled commitment to nonviolence as central to the way of Jesus. The practical solution to the threat of invasion and the destruction of societal order for this minority religious group was to trust the governing authorities to act as, quote, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, as we see Paul's instructions in Romans 13. So while right now it seems like I I am making a open and shut case for pacifism to be the the mode of, of, of practice that, that, that Christians hold to today, I, you'll find that I, I don't think that it's actually that clear. Now, over time, what what appears to be an unforeseen scenario to Paul and the other the other New Testament authors happens. Many many of those in positions to be the quote agents of wrath become Christians. You know, Constantine's conversion, which happened in the early fourth century, and and subsequent adoption of Christianity as the de facto religion of the Roman Empire, brought unique challenges to Christian perspectives on war and peace. In this 4th century, Augustine grappled with how Christianity's new position in seats of power could properly properly be stewarded in light of New Testament teaching and the church's historic attitude towards violence. Living the, during the barbarian invasions that rampaged the empire, Augustine had a serious view of the potential destructiveness of sinful people and believed that while peace was the Christian goal and and that no war could ever be completely just, violent defense against aggression was a sometimes necessary step towards ensuring that even worse violent injustices were not perpetuated upon the weak and powerless. For Augustine and his just war contemporary Ambrose, Christians must begin with the, quote, ideal of love of neighbor and enemy and inquire how to best put it into practice in a fallen world, end quote. Peace is the goal, but sometimes violence must be regretfully employed in policing or in national conflict as a middle course with what we might say, transitional value as we work towards Jesus's ideal vision in the Sermon on the Mount. These post-Constantinian challenges seem to be more relevant to modern Americans, with Christians frequently in seats of power and prominence and authority, um, far more so than the audience of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount or Paul's epistles to the Roman believers. 
American Christians, particularly those in, in my immediate context of white, middle to upper middle class Midwesterners, just they bear very little positional resemblance in society to that of Jesus's original audience in the Sermon on the Mount. And it might be a whole another question for another time as to, well, maybe that's a red flag for us to begin with. I don't know. That's the, But regardless of that, that's just the way it is. And the question then becomes, does this positional difference in society affect how we are to relate to those New Testament texts? Even the noted pacifist theologian Richard Hayes believes it presents challenges in application for those in positions of power and influence. Quote, If the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to a marginal community outside the circle of power, its teachings cannot be directly applied in a context where Christians hold positions of power and influence, or they constitute the majority in a democratic political order. End quote. And we just have to acknowledge this. This is the reality of the situation living in America. Christians, as much as we might feel like certain religious liberties and things might be trampled on, and you know, you can, I, I certainly hear plenty of arguments happening about those sorts of issues. We're not a marginal community that's uh, a people that are um, not without any power or influence. In fact, We've never had a president in our entire history not claim to be a Christian. Um, this is not an issue for us. We are in a very different positional location in our societal structure than those early listeners to the Sermon on the Mount or those New Testament Christians that Paul was addressing. So, what do we do then? Does that some might say, you know, well, that doesn't matter. Um, some might suggest that to you, the positional difference doesn't matter. And all we are to do is to follow Jesus's nonviolent teaching. And I hear that. I can understand that. If somebody lands there, I, I respect that. Um, but I think what we need to deal with is this tension of being peacemakers. Yes, that is our primary goal. That is that is the position that we should acknowledge. This is what Jesus's ideal is. What does it mean to be peacemakers in the now and not yet kingdom? The kingdom of God that is here and we are advancing and living within and yet acknowledging the realities of the not yet in the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God has not been made fully manifest, and that some of us might be in positions where we might be the only line of defense for the poor, the defenseless, the innocent. Though there is biblical warrant in the Old Testament for holy war, Christian support for it today, in my opinion, is the result of a failed hermeneutic that neglects the biblical merits of progressive revelation and I would say even has a low Christology that, that just does not recognize the supremacy of Christ's revelation in Scripture. God does not wish to build the temple of his renewed creation with blood-stained hands. I'm going to say that again. I, I firmly believe that God does not want to build the temple of his renewed creation 
with blood-stained hands. Though the way of peace may primarily be a deontological, a principled commitment that ultimately hopes in God's eschatological justice, I think there are valid teleological arguments, valid arguments for what consequences these choices have for the transformative effectiveness of uh, nonviolence as a superior method to armed defense or retribution. I, I think there's valid arguments. We we can see it. Um, this commitment to the, we could, you know, maybe another word for teleological that might be more helpful is a pragmatic commitment. Uh, that, that pragmatic nonviolence, it's a pragmatic position because it actually leads to a better immediate result. I think we could see as an argument for that um, the usefulness of nonviolent resistance in the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi. I think there is a compelling case that can be made for the transformative power of what we might call just peacemaking, or others such as Walter Wink have called Jesus's third way, which emphasizes intentional active peacemaking initiatives as a preventative cure for war. You know, so often in these debates, we instantly jump to, well, what happens? I mean, you know, are you just going to love on Hitler till uh, he says, I'm, I'm sorry for what I've done, and he's going to lay down his arms? That's so unrealistic. Yeah, but we are instantly jumping to war already happening. And so there are people out there like uh, Walter Wink and Glenn, and Glenn Stassen who have made compelling cases for uh, active peacemaking initiatives as a prevention, as a preventative cure for war. What what could we possibly do to keep war from happening? What In the case of World War II, think of these European powers that went to war, both in World War I and World War II. But think of World War II. How many of those nations, how many of those nations involved in World War II were quote-unquote Christian nations comprised of primarily church-attending, baptized Christians? Now again, are they following the Jesus way? That's kind of what this whole podcast is about, but they claim to be Christian. Germany, France, Italy, Great Britain, the United States. I mean... We could go on with our list here. What would have happened if instead of, well, now we've gotten into war, now, now, now we're kind of stuck here. What sort of peacemaking initiatives, preventative cure for war could have happened? What could those Christians have done leading up to those days in those nations to prevent World War II from ever have happening? The deontological, that is like the principled, and the teleological, that is the pragmatic arguments, I don't think have to be an either-or, but but rather could can be a both-and. Nonviolent peacemaking should be, I really do believe this, I believe nonviolent peacemaking should be the normative standard that informs the daily ethical decision-making of Christians. I mean, this is what Jesus taught us, and so the best we can, this should be our norm. Christians should consider what could possibly happen in the world if armies of, quote, uh, Christian peacemaking teams were trained in the tactics of just peacemaking and released 
into unjust, violent settings with the same willingness to give up their lives as MLK or Gandhi. Think about that for a moment. Think about if instead of you know, our, our, our nation and the Christians in our nation being supportive of spending more on military than the next 10 nation states combined in the world, if we thought about unleashing on the world instead of weapons of war, we primarily thought about what, what would it look like if we were sending out armies, quote unquote, of peacemakers first? I've often thought, though I am in no way supporting of this, I've often thought, what would happen if instead of, what would happen if even a fraction of our budget for military was spent on missionaries instead? What would be different? Would that be more effective? Certainly is an interesting thought experience. And again, be clear, I do not think uh, taxpayer money should be going and funding Christian missionaries. Just to be clear, that's just a hypothetical. So again, I think nonviolent peacemaking should be our normative standard, and we should really think about what would happen if Christian peacemaking teams trained in these tactics of just peacemaking were sent out into the world. If they experience in the here and now success in transforming swords into plowshares, then we are all the more fortunate. If not, this principled deontological commitment that holds fast to the promise of eschatological transformation and holds fast to the the promised reward of blessing for peacemakers in the age to come. It should be a satisfactory motivation, just as it was for many great saints over the past two millennia. The testimony of the martyrs bears witness that giving your life as Christ did is never done in vain. Now, while nonviolence and pacifism is the ideal, especially for those in powerless positions of society, a.k.a. first century Christians, uh, black civil rights leaders in the 1960s. Uh, We can think about even throughout the Middle East, Christians who are facing facing the, the same sorts of daily dangers as first century Christians did and are now facing it from, you know, forces of, uh, of radical Islam. I think we should say that that's the ideal, but I would also say that it's very much possible because of the lack of scriptural directive to communities who held significant positions of governance and authority And due to the radical structural differences between the first century Roman governance and 21st century American governance, including the democratic election of a commander-in-chief, nobody was electing the emperor. And I, you know, I don't like to think of our president as an emperor, but one similarity is that the executive branch and the office of the president is the commander-in-chief over all of uh, U.S. armed forces. Because there's these radical differences, I think we are left in the difficult position of not being able to reasonably demand uh, that all Christians on the subject of war um, have to be human, uh, have to be pacifists, especially when we start to consider cases of humanitarian crisis. As we inhabit this space in history between Christ's ascension and his return, we may, in limited cases, be left with no other conscionable option 
than to practice a sort of conflicting absolutism where with weeping and mourning, Christians, who may in some cases be the only righteous agents of wrath, must threaten proportionate lethal force to prevent the murder, rape, and wanton slaughter of the innocent. And as much as, again, I've made this case that the primary mode of operation is nonviolence and peacemaking, we do have to ask the, the, the realistic question of what is it? what would society look like if we didn't have Jesus following police officers? I mean, what would happen without the threat of lethal force? It's, it's hard to imagine that without that deterrent, that without that deterrent, there would be less murder, rape, wanton slaughter. And then we think about on a global level, genocides, humanitarian crises. You can see why this isn't just an open and shut case. Even in these, I think, remorseful circumstances where perhaps Christians uh, must use proportionate force to prevent the destruction of the innocent, we we have to ask for the guidance of the Spirit of God to direct us towards the things that make for peace. Okay, well, that's great, Paul. Practically, what is what does that look like? Again, my goal in this podcast here is to not necessarily lay out well what what would be what would be those specific circumstances where we might say, "Gosh, this is this is this is cause for um, for use of force, for use of defensive force to protect the innocent." Not just in a in a policing situation, but actually in a perhaps a, a global. Uh, foreign policy situation. I, I think we do have uh, Christians throughout church history in defending just war theory have laid out, in many cases, some good criteria. And I think that would actually be a great place to begin. So let's talk about what some of these historic, the historic criteria has been for what would be an instance where war is sadly permissible, like we're not doing it excitedly. And then when in it, what are perhaps the the guidelines for now that we're in it? Is there a way that we can do, do this more ethically? And I know that seems, again, like an oxymoron, like we're... But here's some of the ways that, that, that Christians in the past have said, here's the criteria for what is a permissible reason and situation for war to be used as the means of last resort. So here's, here's some of the, the, the classic um, throughout church history, you know, coming from the legacies of Augustine, Aquinas, and even some more recent theorists, what they would say, here's just criteria for entering a war. You have to have just cause so just cause must be things like, again, it has to be defensive. Um, it can't be for, you know, I, I, I want 
your oil. I want your land. I want, we want to seize your property. You, one must have right intention. It must be declared by a legitimate authority, a legitimately established governing authority. There must be a reasonable hope of success. If there's no reasonable hope of success of actually getting to peace, then uh, it must uh, it should be rejected. It should be of last resort, and there should be an announcement of intention. So a clear declaration of war, a clear declaration of the cause and the intention and and why this is the last resort. And last resort is, again, it should be that. It should be the very last resort. You've, you've exhausted all other options. Now, when conducting and actually being in war, here's some of the things that, you know, Christians, uh, and this is broad, there's been obviously disagreement on this, but um, you should sustain right intention. Now that you're there, let's say um, in the case of um, I'm not. I'm not going to say this was a just war, but let's let's say, for example, you know, in the first Gulf War, right? There was concerns about. Well, um, Saddam had been uh, essentially the genocide of um, Kurdish Iraqis, right? And then there was concerns that he was going to move into Kuwait, and uh, and he was going to sue. He wanted to seize Kuwait's oil fields. So let's just say, for example, that for some reason, the humanitarian issue makes it a just reason for entering a war. Uh, sustained right intention means, well, now that we're over there, um, you know, maybe we should go in and take uh, and seize the oil fields in Kuwait. You know, so sustained right intention means you continue that even in war, that you have a proportional use of force that there should be a protection of non-combatants. Um, so there's been this idea that when you enlist to be a warrior or soldier, that you have essentially signed off your life, but um, that, that, that women, children, innocent people have not signed off on that. There must be a positive cost-benefit calculation. So more good than harm should be done. And then finally, there must be a protection of fundamental human rights and then as you exit the war there there should be clear conditions for sustainable and just peace and there you should be leaving infrastructure to support safety and well-being of citizens so let's just take this criteria for for a second and those of you that are pacifists please don't shut this off and go like there's so many problems with this this and this yes there are problems with this but i just want to throw this out using let's say we're to use this criteria yeah, this is a provoking question that might upset some people. Has America ever been in a just war? I just think about that. Is there a war in America's history that has been just? Let's go through these causes uh, or the the criteria again. Just cause right intention, legitimate authority, reasonable hope of success, last resort, clear announcement of intention, sustained right intention, proportional use of force, protection of non-combatants, positive cost-benefit, protection of fundamental human rights, leaving, uh, you should have sustainable and just peace, you should leave infrastructure, okay. Has Has there been an American war? 
guys, I'm not anti-American. I just want you to hear this I, I, and, and be able to seriously ask this question with, uh, with uh, serious in, in, introspection. I mean, we could go through the list. I mean, I mean, it's popular for people to jump right to World War II because of the Holocaust. But I mean, we we would even have to reassess some of these things in relation to U.S. involvement in World War II and go, well, proportion, proportional use of force. I mean, we dropped two atomic bombs on civilian cities. <laughs> Well, did we really have protection of non-combatants? That that's clearly a no. And that's not to say that uh, definitively that we should or shouldn't have entered into World War II. I again to go back and perhaps if we had armies of just peacemaking and we were looking at just pe- peacemaking as the prevention, the ounce of prevention that's worth the pound of cure, that that maybe World War II doesn't happen if enough of these Christians quote-unquote Christians in Germany say, oh, no, our allegiance is to Jesus, not to Germany. Our allegiance is not to France or Great Britain or the United States. Our allegiance is to Christ first. And I, I realize, you know, the predominant blame there would be on, on Germany in World War II, but then you have to go back and even think about, well, what led to that in Germany in the first place? Well, it was... The, Conclusion of World War One, the Treaty of Versailles, the harsh penalties placed on the German nation. And, you know, was that just? Was that, did we uh, ensure the safety and well-being of citizens of the people of Germany? To me, this is such an important area of conversation because so much of warfare has changed. And um, even the idea of a announcement of intention, a declaration of war. You know, we like to now in the United States have these, um, I think President Obama had coined the term kinetic military action <laughs> to, to talk about something that was a war, but we don't really want to call a war in Libya. That we've become so used to a custom that's where you're in perpetual war so that we don't even call it war anymore we don't question this at all we don't blink an eye and i am guys i'm so sympathetic to the the causes and the, the, the issues of injustice that that people are wrestling with here locally whether it's um i'm sympathetic to the the the, the debates and the 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 voice of concern that that's coming from black Americans who are really concerned, so concerned that they have to say my life matters. I'm sympathetic to that, but guys, what, I mean, what, when was the last time that you saw um, people protesting on the streets war anymore? It's popular when a Republicans in office, it was popular when Bush went to war in Iraq to have this happen, but it seems like, it seems like our, our conscience in this area is like, well, it's just always going to be like this. You know, what about, what about, what about non-American lives matter? I mean, that's a provocative statement. So I think there's some 
some things that we should say, no matter where you land on this, and even if you go, well, I still think there might be a case where I'd go beyond just war and say holy war is is biblically supported. I, I, I think this is a conversation worth continuing to have, but where's areas where Christians should be able to agree on the subject of war and the use of violence? And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to uh, my former professor, Glenn Scorgi, who is out at um, Bethel Seminary and in, in, at the San Diego campus, who laid out these points on which uh, most Christians, I think, should agree. First, that Christians must resist evil. Now it's just a matter of what does it look like for us to resist evil and I would make the case, as I did to, in this podcast, that there is a normative way that Christians must and should resist evil in their daily life, and that is to employ nonviolent peacemaking as their primary normative way of doing daily life. And then we can have dis- debate and discussion about what happens if it seems like those are, are not effective in protecting the innocent, but Christians must resist evil. Christians should always, I mean, always feel that war is horrific and tragic. And this is another area I have so much concern for. And it comes across in our, to take, you know, James K.A. Smith's term, in our cultural liturgies and our practices of worship, whether it's at NFL games and whether it's, you know, commercials about, um, you know, enlist in this particular branch uh, of of the army and I, i'm not i'm not anti-military guys I'm, I'm really not i've been so thankful to get to to um, mentor and to, to pray with uh, young people that i've taught before that entered into the army and that many of them have done so in ways that they felt were being faithful to their calling i'm not anti-military i actually i think if you've heard my podcast i, I hear today that there is areas where we might have to say we have to defend the innocent somehow with proportionate force, but we should be able to say war is horrific and tragic. It's something that maybe we get desensitized to as we as we uh, spend endless time consuming war stories where war is celebrated, whether that happens in in playing a video game or or whether that happens in our own cultural stories that we tell or in our practices of cultural worship again in an NFL game where we have uh, military bombers or even at times drones flying overhead as our national anthem is played and it's a sign what uh, we don't even think twice that these wep- massive weapons of war and destruction are flying overhead and we're celebrating it and the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. This is uh, just normal. War has become normal for us. And I think one thing we should perhaps regain is our conscience about war. That war is horrific and tragic. Even when evil people like Hitler are defeated. It's tragic. It's horrific. We should also confess that that no side is ever completely without sin there isn't a always a clear good guy and most of the time there isn't a clear good guy 
and a clear bad guy, somebody that is without sin and someone that is totally a side that is the sinful side. There are sins involved in every human being's life and then you magnify that on a national scale and you put sinful people in positions of power, the sin could be, it gets amplified and we have sinful conglomerations of people formed in the nation states and none of them are without sin. And yet simultaneously, the next, the fourth affirmation is, is every human being is equally loved by God. God is not more for Americans than he is for Iraqi people. God is not more for Americans than he is for Russians or Chinese, or you pick whatever the pet enemy of the month is in our national narrative. God is not more for people who are in Muslim, uh, more for Americans than he is for people in Muslim nations. God is not more for our our wartime allies than he is for our traditional wartime enemies. Every human being is made in the image of God, equally loved by God. The fifth point I think we should all hopefully be able to agree on is that war presents special spiritual challenges and perils. The time of most intense persecution in the history of Iraq for Christians has coincided with the uh, invasion of Iraq in Bush's presidency. You talk to people who have been missionaries in the Iraqi region that it has been the most intense time of persecution in, you know, potentially in the history of of Christians living in the region that, you know, hasn't always been called Iraq. I'm not to say, this isn't to say that they're, um, that, that's not to say that, well, America is at fault because we entered trying to, quote, liberate, or some would say invade or take over, depending on whatever word you want to use. What it, what it is to say is that there are spiritual challenges and unintended perils that come and they create these these unique situations that can have unintended consequences that go far beyond what we were able to plan or imagine. Do you really think we would have been able to foresee during the Cold War in the 80s when we were arming Taliban fighters in Afghanistan to, uh, to fight against our Russian enemies? Would we have ever imagined that decades later... They'd be using those same weapons to fight against uh, Americans as we are attempting to um, round up and capture or kill bin Laden and members of Al-Qaeda. Would we have ever been able to see that? Obviously not. <laughs> There's special, there are these unique perils that come about and we should realize that that is, we can't foresee those things. We are not sovereign. We do not we do not have omniscience. And, and finally, the sixth point that uh, Dr. Glenn Scorgi brings up is that, uh, that Christians should agree that Christians are called to imitate Christ. And what does that look like? What does it look like for Christians to imitate Christ? 
Well, I hope that you found today's topic to be helpful. I'm certain that for maybe some of you, this is challenging. I certainly have presented more strongly um, my own thoughts in this uh, particular podcast than perhaps I have when addressing the issue of science and faith. But I've done this because I, I feel so strongly that this this deserves that kind of attention because we have such a dramatic impact on what happens in the world based on who we put into office. And so while we're weeks away and while we're not voting on a president right now, you know, having these sorts of discussions are important. So I'd love to hear from you. If there are things you disagree with me on, I hope you share them with me. I, I want to engage. These are ideas that we need to be engaging with each other on and and exchanging ideas with each other on. And so uh, let's have the conversation. Let's have the dialogue together. guys again for for listening to this podcast i know in the summer months there was weekly or nearly weekly content coming out and that pace is just not sustainable right now but i do hope that you guys still stay engaged when these episodes come out and you know frankly there's there's enough time the length of these podcasts is long enough to probably give you plenty of stuff to chew on for a while and debate and wrestle with as always i welcome your feedback i welcome your comments uh, reach out to me on any of these mediums, whether it's on a comment on Podbean or iTunes or, or connecting with me on Twitter at Paul Anlinger. Thanks, guys. 